You're listening to teaching from Midtown Fellowship, a Jesus-centered family on mission in Columbia, South Carolina. If you're interested in finding out more about us, our family of churches, or how to partner with us, go to midtowncolumbia.com. chance to meet you already. I'm Ant, pastor here at Midtown 2 Notch. Very glad that you chose to come here and worship with us today. I do see that we have some new faces, some visitors here today. Hopefully our host team or someone from our church was already able to meet you and greet you, let you know that we're glad that you are here. Uh, if not, or even if so, we would love for you to stop. We have a, you'll, you'll see a sign out there in the lobby uh, after we're done, just a place for first-time guests to come through. We would love to meet you, maybe get a little bit of information from you as well, if you would give us the opportunity to do that. Uh, that said, we are starting a new sermon series today called Warriors. We were in 1 Corinthians for a while, uh, but we're switching it up. Just to let you know, since we're talking about warriors, uh, if any one of y'all spoils Avengers for me, y'all going to see me fight for real, for real. Wow. For real, for real. Big fact. So anyway, glad that you're here again, worshiping with us today. We're going to be getting to this new series. I've been excited about this one for a while the series that we're calling Warriors. Feel free to go ahead and turn to Genesis 1. Uh, we'll get there in a little bit, but you should have a Bible in the seat back in front of you. If you do not own a Bible, we would love for you to take that Bible home with you today as a gift from us to you. We want to start us off with a question today. If someone were to ask you, what does it mean, talking to the Christians in the room, if someone were to ask you, what does it mean to follow Jesus, what would you say? If someone asks you, what is the Christian life actually like, how would you describe it to them? There's a lot of different answers that you could give that would be correct, right? Like if somebody were to ask me, Aunt, who, who are you, right? I'd probably say I'm, I'm a father of Jesus. I'm a follower of Jesus. I'm also a father, right? I'm a husband as well. I'm a son. I would say I'm your favorite preacher. Like just different things that are true that I would just bring up just, you know, so we, you can know who I am. There are many things that we can bring up to answer questions like this one, but I do think it, it's worth noting that oftentimes the first thing that comes to our minds reveals what we believe the most, right? It would, it would reveal what, what I would think of first if you asked me who I was, would reveal potentially what I most deeply believe to be true about myself. So if someone were to ask you, what is it like to follow Christ, how long would it take you to say, it's a fight? It's a fight. It's a struggle. It's an ongoing struggle, right, where there's an enemy, where, there, where there's someone who wins and someone who loses. How long would it take you to bring up that the Christian life is a fight? You don't have to turn there. But in 2 Corinthians, I'm sorry, 2 Timothy chapter 4, verses 6 through 7, Paul is writing his last letter that we have from him to his son in the ministry, Timothy. Timothy is someone he would have been very close to. He writes, for I am already being poured out as a drink offering, and the time of my departure has come. So Paul, when he writes this, he's, he's about to be executed for his faith. We're being a leader in the Christian movement at the time. They're about to execute him. So he's writing this letter. He's saying, the time for my departure has come. I'm about to be a martyr for my faith. Verse 7, I have fought the good fight. This is how he describes his life as a Christian. I have fought the good fight. In my walking with Jesus, in my knowing Jesus and making him known to others as he's reflecting back on it, the words that come to his mind are words of fight, words of struggle. 
I want to make sure I explain today and really throughout our series how much of the Christian life is actually a fight. It's important for us to know this and understand that the Christian life is a fight because I fear that if we don't understand this, we will walk in defeat as Christians even though we've already been given victory. I fear that if we don't understand the degree to which the Christian life is a fight, that our our life's experience will actually be one of defeat, and we would just accept it as everyday life. We would accept not walking in the victory that we have been given as just the way that life is supposed to go if we are desensitized to the fact that the Christian life is to be a fight every day of our lives. It's my belief that many of us experience life as just this existence between from one task to the next task, where our circumstances are the primary uh, determining factor of what our life is like. Where our circumstances, the things that happen to us, the things that we're able to do, are the things that determine the most whether or not we have joy in this life. If my circumstances are good, if I receive from this life what I expect to receive, and if I get to do in this life what I expect to be able to do, then I have joy. Or that our peace of mind will be determined by our circumstances. If I can control the way my life goes, then I'll have peace in my mind and in my heart. But if life gets unexpected, if things start coming at me that I didn't expect and I didn't want, and I can't control my life enough to get those things out of my life, then I can't have peace in my mind and peace in my heart. We see these things as circumstantial. Our circumstances determine whether or not we have love to show to others in our life. If someone treats me well then I can show the love of God to them. But if someone crosses me, someone mistreats me, someone says something out of the way to me, then I'm unable to show love to them. Thank you. (laughs) Anytime, anytime. If the Christian life, if the Christian life, if it looks like, and it's lived just like someone who does not know Christ, then what's the point? Then what is the point? If the, if the life as a, as a believer of Jesus looks exactly like someone who doesn't know Christ, we are walking in defeat even though we've already been given victory as followers of Jesus. See, we see things like love, joy, and peace and other blessings from God in our heart as circumstantial, but God sees them as spiritual. We see love, joy, and peace in our hearts as things to be determined by the presence of tri- by whether or not there, there is a presence of trials in our life, and God sees them as things that are determined by whether or not the Holy Spirit is present in our lives. We see love, joy, and peace as things, as the fruit of our circumstances, but God sees them as the fruit of the Spirit. If our level of joy, love, peace, and all the other spiritual blessings that we have aren't able to endure no matter the circumstances of this life, we do not know how to walk in the victory that we have been given. And don't misunderstand me. I'm not trying to say you shouldn't be down. I'm not trying to say you shouldn't grieve. I'm not trying to say you shouldn't be sad. But what I'm saying is if we are not able to possess and, and display the fruit of the Spirit, even when we are sad, even when we do grieve, even when we are down, then we are accepting, we are yielding and submitting to our circumstances and not to what God has already given us. We have to learn to walk in and fight for the victory that he has already offered to us. I want to try to explain everything that I mean by that today. So uh, I already told you to turn to Genesis chapter 1. We're going to get started in verse 26. Right before I get there, I want to make sure you understand the context. God has just created everything uh, in, in the six days before he's created mankind. He's created the, 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 the heavens and the earth. He said that it was good. And now we see what he says as he's beginning to create 
us, mankind, man and woman. Verse 26. Then God said, let us make man in our image after our likeness. Let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over the livestock and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him, male and female, he created them. In ancient times, when kings were marking their territory, they would send statues of themselves to the extent of the region in which they were ruling at the time. So they didn't have, the the maps that they had weren't as detailed and weren't as structured and easy to follow as what we have today, right? right? No Google Maps back then, right? So the way that they would make sure you knew whether or not you were in their territories, they would send out statues of themselves. So if you see a statue of the king here, you know that that's who's the king and that's who reigns in this territory that you are currently in. So God creates mankind in his image after his likeness. And, and, the first, and the first command that he places in the Bible is be fruitful, multiply, fill the earth. God is claiming the earth as his territory. He's saying, this is mine. I run this. The Bible said the, the, that the world was made by him and for him. That it all belongs to him. It was made for him, for his glory. And he sends us out as his images throughout the entire earth to say, this right here belongs to me. I reign over it. I rule it. It's mine. I'm the king. And then we also see in these same passages, let's look, at verse, let's look at verse 28. And God blessed them and said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it. To subdue means to conquer, it means to overcome, it means to, to subjugate, to bring something over your control. So we see this delegated authority that he gives to mankind over the earth. So he's already establishing an authority system in his kingdom. He runs stuff. Mankind is under him there to subdue the earth. We keep reading and have dominion. Over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth. So to have dominion has the same root word as word to dominate. So now you are, we, mankind was to rule over the animals as well. Subdue the earth. Mankind is delegated authority over the earth and have dominion over the fish and all the animals as well. More delegated authority. Here's what that is. So I can't come to your job and say, I can't come to Chris's job and be like, hey, everybody, Chris is in charge now. Y'all listen to him. I'll be back in a month to check in to see how it's going. I can't do that because I don't have the authority. The only person that can do that is the person who was in authority in that space. God comes in and says, this is mine. I'm going to get to decide who reigns over it, and I'm going to get to decide who is under them. He delegates and sets up an entire system of authority because he's saying, this is my kingdom. This earth is mine. I made it. I made it for myself, for my glory. That's his design. That's how he wanted it to work in the very beginning. If you're familiar with the story, you know what comes next. In chapter 3, the serpent comes in, deceives Adam and Eve, gets them to question their God, gets them to question the king, communicates to them that they will be better off if they just followed their own hearts and their own desires. Genesis chapter 13, we see, let's read 17 through 19. And to Adam, he said, because you have listened to the voice of your wife and have eaten of the tree of which I commanded you, you shall not eat of it. Cursed is the ground because of you. In pain, you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Thorns and thistles, it shall bring forth for you. And you shall eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your face, you shall eat bread. Did you notice the shift? They were subduing the earth before in chapter one. 
They were in control over the earth in chapter 1. Now it's like the earth is rebelling against them, just like they rebelled against God. The whole authority structure that he has set up, we're seeing that it's starting to fall apart. It's starting to rip at the seams the way God set it up. The, the irony of the whole situation is they rebelled against God in pursuit of their own authority. They want to have authority over themselves, and they ended up losing the authority that they were already graciously given in the first place. They rejected the authority structure that God had set up, their king had set up for them, in pursuit of their own authority, in pursuit of being able to, to lead themselves, and end up losing what they had graciously, graciously been given. The serpent, who we come to find out later in the Bible, is Satan, the enemy of God. I want us to pay very close attention. This is very important to how Jesus and the Apostle Paul refer to him. And so we understand this narrative as it is unfolding. In Ephesians chapter 2, we won't turn there. Paul calls him the prince of the power of the air. In 2 Corinthians 4, Paul calls him the God of this world. In John chapter 12, Jesus calls him the ruler of this world. You see what's happening? He is leading a revolt against the true king by claiming himself to be king. By seeking, he's making a play for the throne, if you would. The one that Jesus calls the father of lies, the one who lied to Adam and Eve in the garden. He uses this, this deception that he has to get the people of God to no longer trust their king and to try to pursue the throne themselves. This is very important that we understand what his methods are. This is very important. He gives them destructive ideas that end up causing them harm instead of giving them the contentment that they were looking for. Hear me on this. He weaponizes ideas that ultimately lead to our destruction. He weaponizes destructive ideas, whether that's through outright lies or sometimes more subtle half-truths. If you're familiar, when he tempts Jesus in, in the garden, he's quoting scripture to Jesus out of context, not bringing out what those scriptures were really actually about, twists the truth, gets us to doubt our king. He leads this revolt, this rebellion against the king. And with this rebellion, this desire to live outside of God's perfect will and plan for their lives and our lives as we do the same thing, comes the reality of what it looks like to no longer live under his gracious authority. Let's look at the end of verse 19. Till you return to the ground, for out of it you were taken, for you are dust, and to dust you shall return. Mankind will experience death now. Mankind will experience what we call the curse that's been placed on the earth as a result of this rebellion. This, this kingdom of darkness brings with it a curse for all of creation and all of mankind. Mankind had chosen to step outside of God's perfect kingdom and rule into a new kingdom. It wasn't just that Satan was, was, was just trying to get them to do something that was a bad idea. No, no, no. They had a change of citizenship in the garden. They changed which kingdom that they were a part of when they chose their own autonomy and freedom from God and his rule and his authority. There was a new kingdom on the rise in the same land that God had established for his territory. So we have the kingdom of God, also called the kingdom of light, and now we have what the Bible refers to as the kingdom of darkness. In one kingdom, you have life, you have love, you have goodness, you have righteousness, provision, and truth. We have trust and faith in God and thus submit to him as the loving God of the universe. 
In the other kingdom, you have pain, death, and darkness. And you have the very dangerous and destructive lie that if I just throw off the restrictions that God has put on me, I'll be more content even though I'll be sacrificing my relationship with him. This is the lie that is at the heart of the kingdom of darkness. That if I just declare my own autonomy from him and his kingdom, that I'll be more content and it is worth the sacrifice of relationship with God for me to be my own king. These two kingdoms are at play in the earth. Some of you have heard me say this before, but what do you call it when two kings claim territory over the same area? It's called war. It's called war. Let's look at verse 15, Genesis chapter 3. I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head, you shall bruise his heel. This is the first prophetic word about Jesus, the coming Messiah, who will come to save us from this curse of sin. And notice the type of language in the verse. This is is warrior language. This is fighting language. The the way that this narrative is set out is this is the very beginning, the first place in the Bible where God promises that that he's going to come back and restore everything to the way that it was. Look at what he says. I will put enmity. It's like animosity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring, referring to Jesus. He shall bruise your head. You shall bruise his heel. There's going to be this, this struggle. There's going to be this fight, this altercation between Jesus, who's the son, who's the son of Eve, and Satan, this serpent. And, it, and it, the picture that's painted is, is, looks like as, as he is going to crush the head of the serpent, his heel is going to be bruised, that Jesus is going to suffer in some way in this altercation between him and Satan. And then later in the New Testament, we see Jesus die on the cross and come back from the grave. And check out what the Bible says about him. It says, with his enemies under his what? As he has crushed the head of the snake. The first prophetic word about Jesus in the Bible is one of fighting. It's one of war where he triumphs over the serpent. From this point on, there's this war going on on earth between the kingdom of God and the kingdom of darkness. The king who once was content to reign peacefully, to just send his people all over the globe, has now put his war clothes on. And he's a warrior. Because he is not content to just sit back as his world, as his creation is destroyed. He is not content and sit back as the kingdom of darkness is growing and now harming the people that he created in his image. He is not content to allow this kingdom of darkness to bring in all this injustice, all this harm, all this pain into his world. No, he puts his war clothes on. And he goes to battle against the kingdom of darkness. And this war has been present on, has been present, excuse me, on this land every moment of every day ever since. I want to show you through the Bible that God is oftentimes referred to as a warrior. We see this in Exodus chapter 15, verse 3. The Lord is a warrior. The Lord is his name. We see this in Isaiah 42, verse 13. The Lord will go forth like a warrior. He will arouse his zeal like a man of war. He will utter a shout. Yes, he will raise a war cry. He will prevail against his enemies. The Lord is a warrior. We see this also in 1 Samuel chapter 17, verse 45. This is right before David goes up to fight Goliath. Look at how he refers to his God. Then David said to the Philistine, you come to me with a sword, a spear, and a javelin, but I come to you in the name of Of the Lord of hosts, the God of the armies of Israel, whom you have taunted. 
When the Bible talks about the name of the Lord, it's not just simply talking about his, his actual name that could be written on a piece of paper. It's not just talking about whether you uh, translated Jehovah or Yahweh. It's talking about something much deeper. It's talking about the essence and the full weight of who he is when it says, when he uses the phrase his name or the name of the Lord. It's less just saying that we should know what his, what his actual name is. It's more like if a police officer were to say, stop in the name of the law. It's saying stop because of the full weight and authority that I now have because I am an officer of the law. So when he says I come in the name of the Lord, he's saying I'm coming representing everything that the Lord is about and who he is. And he is a warrior, the Lord of hosts. That word host there in verse 45 could be translated armies. And in some translations it is translated armies. He says that he is the Lord of Armies. That was David's confidence as he was going to fight against what was currently the biggest threat to the spiritual prospering of God's people. His confidence was that the Lord is a warrior. As we look to fight against the kingdom of darkness, is that your confidence today? Is that your confidence that God is a warrior? When you see sin present in your life, is that your confidence that God is a warrior, that he is at war with this sin? When you see darkness in our communities, when you see injustice, when you see those being neglected and abused, is your confidence that God is a warrior and that he is at war against the kingdom of darkness? Is that your confidence as it was David's confidence as he faced the giant? David was one who was smaller in stature, facing something and someone who was much bigger than him, that all the other warriors, he was a shepherd, but all the other warriors were afraid. But David was able to face this giant because he had confidence that his God was a warrior, that he is the Lord of hosts and the Lord of armies. May that be our confidence. This language, this narrative of God being a warrior is not just the case in the Old Testament, it's in the New Testament as well, we're going to look at Matthew chapter 4, verse 17. I want to give you a little bit of the context before we get into it. Jesus, just a chapter, I believe one chapter before, had just been baptized, and he was led into the wilderness by the Holy Spirit. He was tempted by Satan in that wilderness. He fasted for 40 days, so he was physically weak and depleted, but he still rises and defeats Satan in that battle. Then he comes out and begins his public preaching ministry. This is how Matthew describes his ministry in verse 17 in Matthew chapter 4. From that time, Jesus began to preach, saying, repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. The kingdom of heaven is at hand. The kingdom that began in Genesis chapter 1, it's at hand. It is coming. I want to make sure we don't don't over-romanticize what Jesus is saying right here. Right in the 1700s, when in the time of the Revolutionary War, when the, when the British were coming to fight against the American colonies, there's a man named Paul Revere who is, who's, who is said to have ridden through the colonies yelling, the British are coming, the British are coming. That was a call to arms. That was a call to fight. When you see language in the history of another kingdom coming, they're not coming for fellowship. They're not coming to have a good time. When a kingdom is coming, they are coming to take over. That is what kingdoms do. When Jesus says the king repent for the kingdom is at hand, he's saying, listen, you got to pick a side because the kingdom of God is coming. Repent from this thing that started in Genesis chapter three, where we decided we were going to be our own kings and our own queens and run our own life and establish this new authority structure in the earth. Repent and turn from that and join this kingdom because this one's about to take over. It's what Jesus is saying. Repent for the kingdom 
is at hand. He's the king. He's not coming to take sides. He is coming to take over. He's not coming so that we can do our own thing and then ask him to come and bless it. He's not coming so that we can live our own life and he can come and cover it, right, and make sure we're okay while we're doing our own thing. No, he's saying, I'm coming. The kingdom is coming. Join this kingdom that's going to win and repent from this kingdom that is going to meet its end. He said, I am the end of the kingdom of darkness. He said, I'm the end of it. And this day is coming, so you need to repent. You need to choose wisely which kingdom you will be in. This is the claim that Jesus is making. Repent for the kingdom of God, the kingdom of heaven, excuse me, is at hand. There is no time to try to play both sides of the fence here. My kingdom is here and the kingdom of darkness is about to be destroyed. Repent and turn to my kingdom. You have to understand the way that kingdoms work. You either submit, you either bow your knee or you pick up a sword against the king. There's no in between. You're either a friend or you're a foe. You're either a citizen or you're an enemy. You either submit to the king or you're declaring that you are against the king. He's saying, repent. The kingdom of heaven is at hand. The time is now. Turn away from your rebellion against the true king who created everything and turn to God. He's saying, you should follow me. You should trust me. Don't trust in the lies that you've been told. Fight against the darkness. Don't fight alongside the darkness. It's his call. The domain of evil that has caused you all of this, that's caused you all of this grief, that has caused you all of this mourning, the very reason that the curse exists, the very reason that suffering exists. He's saying, I'm coming to take it away, but you got to join my kingdom. But you need to follow me. This is the call that Jesus has. As we share our faith, as we communicate who Jesus is, That's always the call. Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Repent because Jesus has come and he has shown us the way to life and righteousness and into his kingdom. Don't trust the lies that you have been told. Maybe you're here today and you're not a follower of Jesus. And Jesus is saying to you here that you live in darkness and he is calling you to repent. Which means simply turn away from the life of rebellion from him. Turn away from being your own king. Turn away from living primarily for yourself and live for his glory. This is what Jesus is saying to you today. Forsake your life of rebellion. Put down your sword in fighting against him and pick up your sword to fight alongside him. Place your trust, your hope, your faith in him, the king who died on the cross to take your sins away and then rose from the grave defeating the kingdom of darkness. He's saying you're fighting for a losing kingdom. Repent. For the very kingdom of heaven is at hand. Don't live in an already defeated kingdom, Jesus is saying. And if you are a follower of Jesus today, the call is to fight against the kingdom of darkness wherever you find it, wherever you might see it. In your own heart, you fight against it. In the heart of others that you see, you fight against it. Anywhere you see injustice and sin prevalent and seeming to reign, we go with the confidence that our God is a warrior and we fight alongside him. There's no such thing as someone who has joined the kingdom of heaven and has not also been enlisted as a warrior. There's no such thing. If you are a follower of Jesus, part of who you are 
is a warrior. It's an aspect of your identity now. This is who you have chosen to be. This is what it means to actually repent and follow him. There is a war. There are two kingdoms that are against each other. And you're always fighting for one side. You're always fighting for one side. There are no other options. The kingdom of heaven or the kingdom of darkness. Fight to help yourself and everyone else reject the lies that the enemy has told us that we should rebel against the authority structure that our God has set up. Can I give you my hope for this sermon series? My hope is that through the word of God, the Holy Spirit of God would awaken hope and faith and fight in us. That he would awaken expectation that we would actually be able to grow and move forward in our spiritual growth and spiritual walk with him. That he would awaken a a, a sense of optimism in each of us. That we would actually dare to believe that we can walk in a supernatural joy in him. That we would actually dare to believe that we can walk in the freedom that he has given us and be able to find peace in him no matter what happens in this world. That we would fight for it relentlessly. That in any area of our lives where we have lost the fight, lost our fight, not saying lost the fight that we're in, but lost the fight that is in us. That in any area that we have surrendered to apathy, that in any area that we have surrendered to the idea that, well, this is just how I am. Nothing's ever going to change. God can't change me. God's not going to change me. God's not going to change this person. That's just the way that they are. God can't change this, this community. He can't change inner city two notch. He can't change anything. That any way that we have surrendered and submitted ourselves to that thought process, that we would rebel against those false beliefs this day and every day. This is my hope that we will have confidence that our God is a warrior, that his battle clothes are on, that he never takes them off until the day that he comes back and finishes everything. That until that day he is fighting, that he is fighting for us and he desires to fight with us. And I can't help but imagine what would happen differently in us as a church if we embrace this mindset. If we would dare to fight relentlessly, I can't help but imagine what would happen if we would be awake to the spiritual battle that we're in and be committed to fighting every day. I wonder if we lived in an awareness of this spiritual battle, if we will remember that the sin that we want to embrace is actually at war with us and thus cherish more Jesus, our Savior, who came to take our sin away. I wonder if we were more aware of this spiritual fight that we were in, that we would fight our sin with an expectation of growth in the Lord, an expectation that he will continue to renew us and make us more like him. I wonder if we were aware of this battle, if we would every single day of our lives be focused and understand, I need to spend time meditating on the word of God because I am in a fight and I can't fight if I don't have my strength. And I can't fight if I am not fed. And no warrior goes to battle without being fed. I wonder if we would passionately use all the spiritual gifts that he has given us to edify the body of Christ. Because we know that the enemy is at war with every single one of us every moment of our lives. I wonder if we would interpret our suffering differently. I wonder if we realized that we are warriors in him. If we would expect suffering. Because no warrior goes to battle expecting it to be easy. I wonder what our prayer lives will look like. I wonder if we will come in here for our Sunday worship services every Sunday, prayed up, because we know that there is spiritual warfare and battle going on every time the word of God is proclaimed. 
that there is a real enemy that is feeding us deceiving lives every single day. And we need God's spirit to work through his word as he is proclaimed. I wonder, I wonder what our prayer walk team would look like if we understood that this very community that we're in, that there is an enemy that is trying to stake his claim and his authority in everyone's lives and trying to dictate everything that happens. But our God is a warrior and he is sending his people out to, to grow and edify his kingdom. I wonder, I wonder if we realize that every single day, moment by moment, we have an enemy that is trying to deceive our children every day. I wonder if we would even still have a need for more volunteers in Kid Town if we understood this. I wonder how quickly we would move and jump at the opportunity to communicate the truth of Jesus to our children over and over and over again if we realize that there is a spiritual enemy that is trying to sift them every single day. I wonder. I wonder what God might do. I wonder how he might change our community. I wonder how he might change our families if we worshiped him as the warrior king that he is if we bowed our knee, if we threw our, our crowns down at his feet and picked up his swords to wage war against the kingdom of darkness. We're going to do something a little bit differently in our life groups coming up. Whereas generally speaking, we have our, our life group guide where we have a discussion about the sermon from each week that we do. And we'll, we'll probably have a little bit of time for that. But honestly, as leaders in our church, we kind of started to feel like I don't believe our people are immersing ourselves in the word of God as we should. How are we going to walk forward and fight if we're not consistently refreshing our souls and our spirits and our hearts in the word of God? So we're going to commit to studying the Bible together in life groups throughout this whole series. As I was just thinking through God, well, how, how can we grow as warriors? The first thing that came to my mind and my heart was we need to be immersed in meditating in the word of God. Obviously, spending time doing that in our life group meetings in and of itself is not going to do it. But how could we possibly fight without our sword? How could we possibly fight without our sword? We're going to journey through the word together throughout this series as warriors. I pray that we will grow as warriors who fight for the kingdom of God together. I'll pray for us and then we'll partake in communion. Father, we are grateful. Grateful for the confidence that we can have that you are a warrior, that you wage war against the kingdom of darkness. Father, that we aren't, we aren't dependent upon our own strength in any way. We aren't dependent upon how, how smart we are or, or how gifted we are or, or how anything that we are. Father, help us to rely on you, your strength, your power, your might, your spirit, your word. Father, convict us for, for ways that we've just grown apathetic. Convict us for the ways that we just forget that we're in a battle, that we just wake up, go about our day, try to accomplish everything on our to-do list, and then just go to bed to try to do the same thing the next day. Father, would you awaken in us an aggression to fight against the darkness, the darkness in our own hearts, the darkness in our lives, the darkness that we see around us, Father, on our jobs, in our families, in our neighborhoods, in this very community that we're in, Father. Where we see the darkness, where we see the effects of the curse, Father, would you give us boldness? Will you give us faith and confidence in you? Will you give us a relentless aggression to depend on you, our warrior king? It's in Christ's name that I pray. Amen.